Grace, mercy, and peace to you from God our Father and our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Amen. Your friends in Christ, our text opens with a rather unique expression, at least for Luke, at that very hour. Jesus' hour in John, it's a major theme in John's Gospel, of course, but this is different. Luke only uses that expression, that very hour, or sometimes we translate it that same hour, a handful of times, and they are all significant events. At that very hour, connects what he's about to say with what is preceding. There's an urgency that's lost without that context, that preceding context. We are well into Luke's travel narrative, which began back in chapter 9, verse 51. When the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. It will not end until chapter 19 and the triumphal entry into Jerusalem again. The near context, though, in chapter 13, verse 23, Jesus urges his hearers to strive to enter through the narrow door. And he goes on to describe the eschatological, the, the heavenly banquet at the end of this age in a, in a confrontation. He gives voice to the alarm of those who are outside. Lord, Lord, open to us. But the master of the house says, I do not know where you came from. Depart from me, all you workers of evil. And then the verse immediately in front of our text, we learn that some who are last will be first, and first last, and it seems that some will not be at all. At that very hour sets up a moment of confrontation. Confrontation, of course, which is our first theme, is rather evident in our Old Testament reading as well. Eric read for us only the reaction to the sermon that Jeremiah preaches, not the text. To grasp the text of the sermon, you need to really go back to Jeremiah chapter 7, which is a longer version of that same speech. Thus says the Lord, amend your ways and your deeds. But the people keep crying, this is the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. But that's not enough. You can't rely on a building. Display and show in your lives that you are children of God's promise. That's the positive side. Then the negative side of his message is this. Do not oppress the sojourner, the fatherless, or the widow, or shed innocent blood in this place. If you don't amend your ways, go. Go to Shiloh. It's only 18 miles up the road. Go look at the desolation that I wrought there. It was once a temple, and now it is only ruins. Jeremiah, of course, narrowly avoids the lynch mob that we read about if we read on in the chapter. The officials of Judah we heard about recall that Micah had spoken something very similar in the days of Hezekiah. Did he not fear the Lord and entreat the favor of the Lord? And did not the Lord relent of the disaster that he had pronounced against him? But back to Luke in the confrontation there. At that very hour, some Pharisees came and said to him, Get away from here, for Herod wants to kill you. Despite how it sounds, the Pharisees are not being helpful here. They're looking for a way to discredit or to trap Jesus. It's just a ruse if we consider the entire context of Luke's gospel. Up to this point, Luke has given us no indication that the Pharisees have any interest in Jesus. In fact, it's quite the opposite. They do not accept him as a prophet. They have a deep resentment for him. And they seek to set a trap for him in chapter 11. But then there is another at that very hour. This one's in chapter 20. Jesus had just told the parable of the wicked tenants who beat the 
owner's slaves who have been sent to him to collect his share. Eventually, they will murder the heir. And the upshot? The scribes and the chief priests sought to lay hands on him at that very hour, for they perceived that he had spoken the parable against them. Matthew tells us that it's the chief priests and the Pharisees. For some unusual reason, Luke does not mention the Pharisees in the passion scene. And then there's confrontation with Herod. Jesus knows that he's dealing with a tyrant. In chapter 3, he locks up John for being called on the carpet for his brother's wife, Herodias. And then he boasts in chapter 9, John I beheaded. But who is this about whom I'm hearing these things? Jesus knows he's a tyrant and answers the Pharisees, go tell that fox. No offense to the two carrying that name in our assembly here. That very hour. That very hour is an hour of confrontation. So I ask the question, does this hour need to be one of confrontation? Have we, has our society, like the people of Jeremiah's day, become comfortable with our sins? Adultery, fornication, homosexuality, violent crime, pornography, and profanity are cabled into our living rooms, and we call it what? Entertainment. We learned this week that uh, coveting and greed will buy you into Ivy League schools. Have we, like the Pharisees of Jesus' day, become a people who refuse the help that Jesus brings? We all know such people. The elderly gentleman that refuses to see a doctor when everybody else knows that he needs to. A high school student that would rather fail than ask for extra help from a teacher after school. The husband or wife who refuses marriage counseling despite repeated pleas from their spouse. The young mom that can't bear to ask her own mother for parenting advice, let alone a mother-in-law. Right after Katrina, Ian McDonald was flying search and rescue missions in a H-60 helicopter. He comments, on our first three missions, we saved the lives of 89 people, three dogs, and a cat. On our fourth mission, to our great frustration, we saved no one. But it was not for lack of trying. The dozens we attempted to rescue refused to be picked up. I felt frustrated and angry at all the wasted time and fuel. I felt as if they were ungrateful. But in truth, they did not know how desperate their situation was. This is an hour of confrontation, a time to confront the sins that have become our bedfellows and the pride that refuses help. But notice Jesus' response. At that very hour may have been a time of confrontation, but Jesus turns hours into days. Behold, I cast out demons and perform cures today and tomorrow, and the third day I finish my course. We could characterize Jesus' actions as the acts of release from those in bondage to Satan and sickness and sin. These miracles testify to the very presence of God in their midst. And then there's a, a second parallel shift from hours to days. Nevertheless, I must go on my way today and tomorrow and the day following, for it cannot be that a prophet should perish away from Jerusalem. This time he's pointing to another to a greater and permanent cure for those same ills. A cure foreshadowed in another Lucan at that very hour. 
The setting this time is the temple, and Mary and Joseph have brought the baby Jesus. Simeon has just given us the words of the Nunc Dimittis that we will soon sing. And coming up at that very hour, she, that's Anna, began to give thanks to God and to speak of Jesus to all who were waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. At that very hour. Let's take a closer look at verse 32. Behold, I cast out demons and perform cures today and tomorrow, and the third day I finish my course. We could translate that last phrase. On the third day, I am, or I will be, brought to my goal. It's a theological passive. God is the agent. Jesus has set his face to go to Jerusalem Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. Jerusalem is about to see its bloodiest hour. The original hearers, you and I, can't help but hear the passion in Jesus' three-day language. Today, the first day, he's lifted up on the cross, performing the final cure for the sickness of sin. You are forgiven. Tomorrow, the second day, his body rests in the tomb as he descends into hell and announces his victory to those demons he had once cast out. And the third day, the resurrection. You too will rise victorious. Why? Because you are baptized into his death and his resurrection. Baptism is connected to another Lucan that very hour. This time from Acts chapter 22. Paul's recounting his time in Damascus. Ananias has come and spoken God's word, and at that very hour, I received my sight and saw him. To which Ananias adds, and now, what are you waiting for? Rise and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on his name. So we too are now baptized, and we now see, and we believe. And it's all summarized by Jesus in that rather poignant lament how often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings and you were not willing. Every time I read that text now, I'm reminded of the 2005 documentary, The March of the Penguins. Remember that story? It's a wonderful role, but this time it's a role reversal, right? It's the father penguin that shelters the egg. And for months, the egg sits on top of its claws, even though he will not eat for almost two to three months, and the temperatures will drop to minus 80 degrees. The egg rests on his claws under a flap of skin. But there's an even more graphic and a human example, and that's Mary Thomas. Mary Thomas was a single mom of nine children. She was living on Chicago's west side. Seven of Mary's nine children were boys, who were, of course, constantly stretching her boundaries of authority and patience. And one day in 1966, Mary opened her front door to find 25 street thugs on her stoop. They were members of the notorious Vice Lords gang, and they'd come to recruit her seven sons. Mary, hearing their intentions, dropped her gaze and said, oh, okay, hold on just a minute. And she closed the door. When she opened the door, the first thing the Vice Lords saw was a barrel of a loaded shotgun. There's only one gang around here, she shouted, and that's the Thomas gang. Well, with the same fortitude, Mary ushered each of her nine gang members through their high school graduation. You may have heard of her youngest son, 
It's Isaiah Thomas, the Pro Basketball Hall of Famer. With an even greater love, this very hour, Jesus continues to gather his children. He gathers us in baptism to be his children by grace. He comforts us again today with the words of absolution. You are forgiven. He feeds us with his very body and blood, which is the setting for one final at that very hour. Clopas and his friend are sitting at table with their visitor. They've spent miles listening to him connect scripture after scripture to the events of the last week, all concerning this Jesus of Nazareth, whom they hoped was the one to redeem Israel. Then he took the bread and blessed and broke it and gave it to them. Their eyes were open and they recognized him and they rose that very hour and returned to Jerusalem saying, we have seen the Lord. We, too, have seen the Lord. He has gathered us. What comfort, what protection we experience under the wings of the cross. There, the icy blasts of Satan can never touch us. There, the fierce attacks of this world are turned aside. This very hour, we calmly wait. Today, tomorrow, or the day following when he will come and gather us forever into his presence in glory. Amen. Now may the peace which surpasses all understanding guard your hearts and minds through faith in Christ Jesus to life everlasting. Amen.